Welcome to the Hypnotic Healers Podcast, your home for insights and insider knowledge about hypnotic change work. With your hosts, control practitioners and hypnotists, Nicole Mazzucato and Anthony Gitch. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Hypnotic Healers. My name is Nicole Mazzucato and as always I'm here with my wonderful co-host Anthony Gitch. Um, before we get started, our usual disclaimer, neither Anthony, myself, nor our wonderful guest today are licensed medical professionals, doctors, psychiatrists, psychologists. So please don't make any changes or alterations to any medications or treatments that you're on based on the conversation that you hear here today. <laughs> Take what you like, leave the rest. And while you're leaving stuff, leave us a review, a love, a like, a thumbs up, a fabulous woohoo, and share us around with your friends, family and colleagues, because, you know, we're worth it. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, that's getting even better and better, Nicole. Um, I know. <laughs> Just keep getting more and more excited. <laughs> it's good to see you today, sweetheart. It's good to see you too. Yeah. Today we have somebody on uh, that we were introduced to through uh, Rory Z, who was a guest. Mm -hmm. And he said, you might enjoy talking to this, this woman. And after the brief amount of time we've spent this morning, I think this is going to be a much more interesting conversation than I even anticipated. Um, so I'm excited, everybody, to introduce you, Dr. Kate Bevan um, from the UK. And uh, yeah, I'm interested. I'm going to tell you, we're going to spend some time talking about what she did her thesis on. Um, yeah, this is going to be exciting. Tell us what you do. Introduce well, hi, yourself. Kate. Hi, Dr. Yeah. Kate. <laughs> yeah. Well, firstly, hi, and thank you so much for inviting me. Um, I'm, I'm delighted that Rory recommended me. He often has um, a challenge shutting me up. In fact, yeah. his favorite way of shutting me up is that I respond very well to a click suggestion. And he has often done that even mid-sentence when we've been teaching together or presenting together. Ah. Um, anything to get a word in edgeways. Uh, sorry, guys, it only works for him. Just saying. <laughs> I don't know if I would have the balls to do that. <laughs> uh, yes. So you, so you work quite closely with Rory. Yeah, we, we both have our own brands and we, we come together to work on some projects, which is great mm. fun. I think it's good to be diversified. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so I, I just want to, I'm really excited to talk about this. You said you wrote your thesis, I believe, on the, the teaching hypnotherapy, what needs to go into that and what needs to go into how, how to go about learning hypnotherapy appropriately. Um, kind of a, a summit up there, but tell us a little bit about that. I think that's because I teach hypnosis. Right. And I was expected to write my own. One of the reasons I, I wanted to um, be associated with the ICBCH was because as an instructor, we are required to create our own hundred hour program and then deliver it to the board. The board goes through it and we have to, and they have to approve it. And then we can begin to teach that process. Right. And, and it's, I, to me, that creates accountability. It creates a sense of this is somebody who's proven that they know what to do. They're not just regurgitating information that some organization says, teach this, and this is what it is. Um, which, you know, and, I, and, I, and to me, that makes me feel a little bit better about what it is that I do. But now, coming from your perspective, where you have written a whole, I mean, I, yeah, I'm really interested in what you think or what you believe goes into appropriate hypnosis training. 
Firstly, what I love about you designing your own training is that it means that you have focused on your knowledge, your skills and your passion. Mm. And that actually means that when you deliver that training, not only are you going to be delivering it from a position of competence and confidence, but also your passion is going to come through. And that is what will help your students learn. So it's fabulous to hear that you've done that. So I'm really impressed totally. I, I got into hypnotherapy via all sorts of different routes. I was fascinated in the psychology of communication and how to communicate more effectively. And long before I was full-time in the field of hypnotherapy, I actually worked in occupational health and risk management. Now, I wasn't one of those people that said, you can't possibly do that health and safety, you know, my view was, how can I help you do what you want to do, but do it in a way that's healthiest and safest for you. Mm. And that was always my interest. So I had a lot of indirect management responsibilities. So I needed to persuade and guide and influence rather than directly tell and have that authority that goes with direct line management and I also had a lot of um, a lot of teaching in my past careers in fact my very first job was actually to teach roller skating yeah wow when when you've got a couple of hundred people (laughs) all skating around a rink you sort of need to be able to communicate with people and actually all of that came together shameless plug into my book how to communicate more effectively it took me 20 years to finally publish that book and all thanks to Rory because he was so patient editing it when I first wrote it so he was amazing (laughs) so during that time managing occupational health I became more and more interested in hypnosis and hypnotherapy and so much so I was running dual careers I trained as hypnotherapist I was working in that field and I was also managing occupational health and risk management um, initially for high-risk industries and then in a university and then hypnotherapy one and so much so that as well as doing my master's for my master's in psychology I actually was able to persuade the university to let me do hypnosis research for my thesis and it took so much persuasion it was it was amazing and I researched state and trait anxiety uh, mindfulness and hypnotic suggestibility using the Stanford scale and has some really, really interesting outcomes from that. And that gave me the sort of bug to explore hypnosis and hypnotherapy more. And although I'd had some great training up until that point, I'd also had some terrible training. Not in this industry. Yeah. Um, For example... I once went on a course and turned up, it was a one day course, and it was a little tiny room in a Hilton. And there were five of us there. And I I was reading through the manual, as you do on that first day, don't you? You you sort of sit there and you look through it. Oh, this is a really good manual. And I was so excited about what that course would be like for that day. I think it was on workplace stress. Fascinating. And then the lady spent the whole morning talking about her boyfriend. Oh, God, I can't bear it when people do that. It does my what? head in. 
we didn't actually open the manual once. What the hell are you talking about? It's when people just start telling you all these anecdotes and just completely don't talk about what you're there to learn about. It's so irritating. That hasn't happened to me. And I would just get up and walk the fuck out and tell them I want my money back. But that's because I'm an American. So. I was just fascinated. I, I was, I'm, I'm a bit of a people watcher, I have to say. And I was just sitting there thinking, well, okay, look, worst case scenario, this is a really good manual. So mm. I've got enough from today. And I just sat and watched and listened and heard how people were interacting with this. All the while thinking, is nobody going to say we're going to actually cover the material? And then we had lunch and we were all sitting there and carried on talking about her boyfriend. And there was just general chit-chat in the afternoon. Sorry, and Kate, this I- sounds like a very British affair. <laughs> Nobody's oh, saying anything. My <laughs> God. opened the manual once. Um, Did you pay for this? I did, but I'm happy I got the manual and it was really a really good manual, I have to say. I hope it was, I hope it was, <laughs> I, wow, that was an expensive manual. <laughs> it, it got me thinking about how people teach mm, and how people right, learn. Right. And certainly for my very first master's, which was in occupational environmental health and safety management, I actually researched how people learn, whether people will learn the most visually or auditorily, if they listen to a lecture, or if they engage, or if it's a mix. And my employees then were really generous about letting me use staff to to research. So I did some really thorough research. And I thought, for my doctorate, it's in education, so it's relevant to check out how people teach and learn hypnotherapy. So I actually maxed out my allowable research time to the day. Mm. I I had to actually get vice chancellor top level approval to to go right to the wire. And then I was literally to the wire for my writing up as well. And it was it was fascinating. I spent six years sitting in and participating in pretty much every hypnosis or hypnotherapy course I could find. Wow. Wow. Oh, mostly in the UK. (laughs) But um, I went to the seminars, the conferences. I stopped counting financially when it went into six figures. Um, oh my gosh. Is this all self-funded? I yeah. was going to ask you, how is this funded now? I know. Oh my it goodness. Was. But I have to say, I've been so fortunate. Doors open because I was a research student. So I was able to go on to medical hypnosis training and learn how medics are taught all sorts of different amazing opportunities that I'm incredibly grateful to have had. Mm. And that was fascinating because it gave me an insight into not just how to teach hypnotherapy, but how people best learn it and what they're influenced by and all the different little tiny factors that come together to make it something that someone not only knows but actually is a part of them going forwards. Mm. And that's really powerful. So it was an amazing, amazing time. I really mm. enjoyed my, my doctoral research. So have, you got, any, have cool. you got any kind of like pointers that you can, you know, sort of <laughs> <laughs> top tips for people that are, that are training? I think one of my, my top level tips is that instead of starting with looking at the courses that are out there 
look at what you want to do Mm. and spend time thinking about what type of therapist or hypnotherapist you want to be Mm. and that's really really important because if you want to just work with children for example or just work with anxiety or if you're really passionate about sport hypnosis then finding the right foundation level course makes it so much easier to progress Mm. you could spend three years studying something very general and all the time thinking but this isn't relevant for me this isn't relevant for me which is a bit of a waste of time whereas Mm. if you actually think well I want to do this Mm. then it's absolutely right many years ago I taught um, a guy who had the most amazing voice Mm. absolutely stunning the very first time I heard him talk I was like wow and he was just introducing himself in class and the interesting thing about him was he didn't actually like people okay okay so you're on a hypnotherapy course and you don't like people Mm. so tell me more about why you're here (laughs) and it transpired that actually his idea was that he would he would record custom mp3s he was going to have an amazing intake process where he didn't have to interact with people pretty much but gather lots of relevant data and then he would record them a custom mp3 and send it off to them And that was his business model. Now, if he'd spent, I don't know, three or six or nine or 12 months working with people face to face and building his observation skills and body language skills, all of that would be wasted. Whereas actually he may have been better focusing his his attention on understanding the use of language and not only what's said, but what's meant by what's said and what isn't said and what that might mean so direct I directed him into a different language stream as it were as opposed to suggesting he focus on his face-to-face skills so really it's about thinking about what you want to learn understanding how you work best and how you learn best Mm. some people do better immersed in a subject absolutely immersed in it and they they do much better if they've got lots of homework that you know it keeps the pace going mm. other people do better where they dip in and dip out yeah. and they need that quiet time when they're not not doing any homework or focus on anything else to allow everything to settle and to process and to integrate and it's it's interesting that you talk about how how you how you learn best how you teach best i come from a teaching background and it wasn't until I actually got to university that I got a dyslexia diagnosis. So I'd kind of gone through school and college and, and it had been a struggle. Um, and then I got to university and I was like, I can't keep up with anything that's going on around me. Like, I don't understand anything. I can't follow lectures. Like, And I got this diagnosis and, and got a lot of help from a, pers- a private tutor. And I remember the tutor saying to me, I think it was probably the first session, she was like, 
there's nothing wrong with you. Your brain just works in a different way. Yeah. And we just need to figure out the way that your brain likes to learn best. Let's speak and, your language. Yeah. And that was so, you know, I was only sort of 18, 19 years old. I spent most of my school career being told that I was not, you know, doing things to the best of my ability or I could do better and things like that. And, and kind of having that person tell me that was like, oh, okay, so I can do this. And when I went on to become a teacher, I really started understanding how my brain works. And that helped me understand how my students were learning and being able to kind of translate things or, or, or kind of, you know, pass information over to them in a way that was really clear and simple. And, and they just got it in and not everybody, you know, some people don't, and that's fine. Some people don't resonate with my teaching style. That's absolutely, that's absolutely fine. And that's just the way it is. I tried to cater for as many people as, as possible, but um, it's really, yeah. And since then I've really learned how my brain works and how I learn best. And, you know, I've, I've gone on to learn amazing things in my life and, and lost the fear of studying. Oh, that's wonderful to hear. It's, yeah, it's, I think it's, it's part of a teacher's job, I find, for me anyway, to work out and to find out and to ask my students what they need mm. from me. Yeah. Um, in my current, my current diploma course, I've got two students, both of whom who have dyslexia mm. and have slightly different learning needs, which is quite interesting. So it's how to adapt to those. One of my good friends... She does so much better with color overlays for all of her mm -hmm. teaching notes. Yet another one who I've taught in the past actually just prefers very brief bullet points rather than mm. comprehensive course notes. So finding out, and one of the things I love about teaching a group is that everybody there will actually learn differently. Mm. And that's what makes it really interesting, being able to, to teach in a way that allows for everybody to be an individual, but for everyone to learn at their own pace, at their own level, in a way that harmonizes mm. within the group. Well, you know, and I think it's important that as, as an instructor or teacher, that sort of thing, because I, I remember back when I, I worked at this company called Business Computer Training Institute, way back in the late 90s and I was teaching people how to become what's called um, well they're computer repair people um, they, they become certified in Microsoft Office users and that sort of stuff and um, computer so at, at any rate we had it's now defunct because it's they, they they just they closed the industry because they were really kind of stealing some people's money at some point because they weren't delivering I don't think that as an overall picture, they're delivering the quality that they needed to. And I'll give you an example. We had a kid in class that when I took over the class, he was failing. And when I would talk to him, I'm like, he, he, he was a really smart kid. Um, he was a mechanic that could work on race cars and all this other stuff and had, you know, you could just describe something, you could tell you exactly what was wrong with it and exactly how an engine worked and all this other stuff. And no one had ever taken the time to, relate the engine to the computer because he was trying to become a computer person or a computer repair guy 
right? And no one had ever said, well, have you ever thought that, you know, the CPU here is the same as this piece here, and this is going to act like this. And, and when we say that this, this is acting like this, this is kind of the carburetor, and we do this, and now this is doing this. And he was like, oh, and everything clicked right? Because somebody actually took a few moments, you know, and granted, I grew up in the country as a hick, and so I had to rebuild a, a, a lawnmower engine in seventh grade. And so I had an understanding of those simple sort of procedures. And it just, when I, I was just like, have no one ever thought about explaining this in a method that you get, right? Instead of trying to force you to do it our way, let's how about we understand how you're doing it. It's just like with ADHD and everybody who was always suggested that, oh my God, it, you know, it, it's going to work against you. No, 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 no. It's a power for good. It just means that I can do more than the average person. Um, you know, when I learn how to contain it and work with it, left alone in its own wild shit chaos storm, that's another story, right? But learning, but if we look at it as a way to contain it, and a way to utilize it rather than something we have to control and put away, right? It's, it makes it a lot better. It makes it something that we're proud about rather than something we have to carry around with this, oh yeah, this is the way I am. Well, no, this is the way I am, and so I can get three things done when that other person can only get one thing done. Susie's a loser. Susie's <laughs> normal. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway. Everybody in in that classroom will have learning differences. Yeah, mm. you know, I, I really, I absolutely hate the way people talk in terms of learning disabilities. Yeah, because they're not; mm. they're differences. Mm. I am the most awful auditory learner. If I had to listen to an auditory training program with nothing to look at or nothing to do, my attention goes really quickly. Mm. Um, I listen to podcasts when I'm driving because that is perfect for me. But mm. to just sit there, look at a blank wall, can't do it. Other people, that's their best way of learning. Yeah. So we're all different. But it is, I, I totally get what you mean with Anthony, with, with being able to relate training, you know, how people train and giving mm. them information in a way that relates to them. It's a bit like hypnotherapy as well, though, isn't it, in a way? Yeah. If you only, if you can only read from scripts and that's, you've got one script per issue, then your client has to alter themselves to mm -hmm. suit your script. Whereas if you can truly work with the individual, they're going to get the best possible therapy for them. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, I mean, the, the yeah. client always has the answers. They've always got everything that we need. You know, a lot of people will still say, well, what do you do to prepare? I sit down and I make sure, and literally I ask, how can I best be with my client? Mm. What is the best space I can provide for them, right? How am I going to best do that? That is the best thing I can do. That's the best preparation I can have. Be 100% present, 100% involved with their reality and 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 then be able to be the objective person and step away from that and kind of observe everything and go well how can i guide them what is and not how can i and not how can i how will i how will i best guide them um you know yeah. and, and then just go with that intuitive flow because i'm there in the moment 
So what is, it's a super fascinating doctorate that you you chose to and thesis that you you chose to do and and I mean your supervisors must have been like oh okay this is new <laughs> yes um the the guy who taught the program when I first told him his face fell mm-hmm. Um, and we, we initially it was going, I was initially going to, to research, um, moral behavior and how people behave according to their morals. And I then said to him, look, I I have to change. I have to do this. This is where I'm going to have to go with this. Hmm. And he's like, but it's a professional doctorate. You know, what relevance has this got to your career? Well, I'm going to teach it in therapy. It's very relevant. And he was amazing finding me two supervisors, one of whom was incredible from an education perspective. And he'd lectured all over Europe. He's written books. He did everything he possibly could. And the other, I was incredibly lucky, was a hypnotherapist. She was actually a nurse who'd studied hypnotherapy. So she knew where I was coming from. Then she and then she taught nursing in a Mm. university. And it was amazing having both of those. We initially started off meeting in in their offices at the uni and we soon moved to the local pub. More comfy chairs. Really looked forward to the everything you see on TV. It's it's sort of like that, but better. Because having somebody chat with you and challenge you and draw you out and, and really make you think so diversely and from different perspectives it was a wonderful growth opportunity people often say that you're not the person coming out of it that you were going into it and Mm. it's absolutely true Mm. it really did give me a a different way of thinking yeah and um on the the day I, I went to graduation that was a challenge because they 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 do the doctorates first and they do them alphabetically. So with a surname like Bevan Marks, it's a B. There wasn't anybody else in front of me. <laughs> so there yeah. I was in my gown. And this gown is old gold, red, uh, basically old gold and red with a big floppy old gold hat. So it's rather eye-catching. And they make me walk all the way through the procession the whole audience there just as a test run before we actually started it's like okay hypnosis be calm everybody's eyes are on you and then when the chancellor read out the title of my my thesis his eyebrows were practically up by his hairline um i don't think he'd read it beforehand so he was rather surprised that it was a hypnosis and hypnotherapy theme for my mm. doctorate everyone else was sort of education based or nursing based and mine was and what was the title of it oh good grief you'd think I would remember but wouldn't you <laughs> that's okay and I don't remember it's <laughs> I think I blocked it out I haven't done it sounds fast that you know that's a lot of work um <laughs> I I I really respect people who have been through that process and 
have had to defend their work and and all that kind mm. of stuff. That's a, it's an interesting process. Good for you. Yeah. Uh oh. I want I wanted to just pick up on something because we were talking just before we started recording, and and we always ask, especially if somebody's got doctor before their name, um, what you're what you're a doctor in. So that led us down. You told us about the PhD. And I also, you know, I also asked you if you are qualified to diagnose or, or prescribe medications. Right. You said that given your master's in psychology, you are, you could diagnose, but you don't. You prefer to stay within the realms of hypnosis without a diagnosis. Tell us a bit more about that, because that's, that's, I think that's a really important point here. I, I, you purely studied for my master's in psychology because I wanted to get deeper theoretical knowledge and mm. that's that was really what I, I fascinated by how the mind works and how we can help people to get the most from their own minds really mm. so that that was my motive for that it wasn't to become a um, psychologist or um, a clinical psychologist or anything like that and I only work within the boundaries of hypnotherapy and that and I only teach as such that as well so I will only work with clinical issues that have been diagnosed so for example if a client comes to me with pain I would ask them to have a diagnosis before I actually started work with them and that's really important because people can diagnose with the aid of Google or the other sites on the Internet. And it may not be relevant. Someone might think, well, it's just a stress headache. It could be something more serious. Right. You know, I had a client a few years ago and her her thought of stress headache actually turned out to be an eye condition. But fortunately, mm. going to get an eye test it highlighted it she was able to get treatment so really important so for anything clinical I work with a diagnosis and sometimes I've in the past um, up until lockdown I used to do some work on the wards of a teaching hospital as a clinical hypnotist and even there I would only work when a patient and I'm using the word patient then because that's what they were a patient had a diagnosis so I'd work within those boundaries mm. although more than once I was asked by patients to work on non-clinical issues mm. would you like a quick story sure yeah yeah I was I was asked I was asked to to work and I I'm making totally anonymized so nobody can be recognized from this no, I was asked to work in the, radio <laughs> the radiology department with a lady who had claustrophobia and for this she was having radiotherapy and she had to wear a face covering and that was all locked down so you're quite constrained and we did some work with her I did some work with her she was an amazing hypnotic subject totally got into it really loved it and we had about 40 minutes left of the session because it was an hour and a half session and I said well is there anything else I can help with and she said, well, I'm a competitive archer. Can hypnotherapy help me with my, my nerves, my anxiety for archery? So we spent the rest of the session doing some sport hypnosis. Now, that most definitely isn't clinical hypnosis. And in that mm -hmm. sense, she was really a client 
for that. Mm-hmm. But she report, she emailed me a few months later and said that it really made all the difference and helped her excel at her next competition. Nice. So absolutely fascinating. But it's, it is working within boundaries, whether I'm working with clients in private practice, on clinical issues, I ask them to get a, an appropriate mm-hmm. diagnosis. If I'm working with somebody who's having treatment elsewhere, then it's usually that I will write to that person and check that it's appropriate for me to work with them as well. Mm, yeah, great. That's 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 really great. Great advice. Um, I mean, your credentials are massive and, and your website, you know, the, your website is impressive. There's so much I want to ask you about. Um, so you, you said on your website here, it says that, oh, where's it gone? I've just lost it. Where's it gone? It says that you are the lead supervisor and marker for the UK's only clinical hypnotherapy master's degree. Yes, that, that degree program has now closed, which is really sad. Oh, no. But, yeah, I've, I've marked the last person for that, the University of Change Direction. Which I university? Was... It's University of West London. Wow. For most, for most universities, they, they really do need hundreds of people through the program. Yeah. And clinical hypnotherapy is quite a niche mm. subject. So the program is never going to be massive and the infrastructure required to provide a master's degree program is huge, absolutely huge. But I I think I've marked almost all of the the theses for the clinical hypnotherapy masters from the first to the last. And the guy who um, studied the first, a guy called Matt Jacobs, did some really interesting research on locus of control and smoking Um, cessation and fascinating to find that people with a more external locus of control tended to be less successful oh interesting wow a little bit of work redirecting the locus of control before smoking cessation the locus of control yes have you heard of it? No. Yeah, I have. I haven't. That's why I'm like, okay, wait, I'm not too, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to ask, what is yeah. the purpose of control? That fabulous guy called Rotter came up with the concept of locus of control. So just as you've got something like um, introversion and extroversion, okay. if you imagine a scale from highly external to highly internal and balanced in the middle, Somebody who's very external believes that they're at the whim of the universe. They're the type of student who will never revise for an exam because they believe the universe will decide whether the questions will be right for them or not. Yeah, Yeah. Uh you've been there. (laughs) Somebody who's very internal tends to be your worrier. They will worry in a hypnotherapy session. They're the types of clients that worry if they're doing it right. Right. Good enough. And they will worry about things outside of their scope of influence. Mm. And ideally, the therapy, you want somebody who's sort of balanced a little bit towards the internal. And they're the wonderful types of clients that not only will engage in a collaborative process, but they'll do their homework as well. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny as you started describing. I'm like, yeah, I know those people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I sure know those people. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, so, so I've got just so many. You've you've done so. You've got so many collaborations and associations and memberships and stuff. And and they're swinging past me on the on the screen. And two pop out that are very good friends of ours. One of them being Rapid Change Works by Howard Cooper. Mm, that's a good guy. <laughs> Yay for Howard. <laughs> and um, a big one for Anthony is HypnoThoughts Live. And I see that you're going to be a speaker there this 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 year. Love HypnoThoughts. As... Are you going to be there this year? Yeah. Oh my God, me too. Yay! Um, yay! <laughs> we meet in person. Yeah, I I love I love HypnoThoughts. I absolutely hated not being able to go during lockdowns. Um, I think I. I did the whole video thing for them the first the first year, which worked really well the second year. But I'm really looking forward to it. I'm going to be there for a whole fortnight. So totally. I'm going to be there for a week because um, um, I'm going to go ahead and take uh, Dr. Tracy Gray's uh, mentalism course. She's been on the show. And so mm. I thought that would be fun. I'm like, oh, we love well, Tracy. what the She's hell? I like fun. Tracy yeah. and, and, and I like fucking with people so let's go to a <laughs> mentalism course that'll just be fun um oh, yeah. you know um and then I've got a couple classes I'm teaching but what are you teaching I'm I'm amazed and incredibly honored they've actually given me two slots in the main conference <laughs> I, I'm they're just so generous they've given me a four hour wow a four hour for EMDR techniques for hypnotherapists right and on. one on therapist self-care nice it's pretty important i know that after lockdown lifted those therapists who were then seeing people in person started to get overwhelmed mm. so i'm going to be using some techniques and resources for people to to really think about themselves a little bit mm. and then i'm actually doing a two-day mm. post-conference as well on the emdr for hypnotherapists well, you know, and that's interesting to me because what was it about five years ago, <clears throat> you, you know, I'm sure you know who Dr. Lori Shapiro is. Um, and, and I read her book on EMDR because I was like, th there was something that was just like, there was, a, there was something that was drawing me towards the idea of whatever was going on with this bilateral stimulation stuff. And, and, and what was, it, there was just something interesting that related to hypnosis for me for some reason. And, and I liked what was going on in her book. The thing that I, because I was specializing in that time in ab reaction, um, I don't know if you know what five path hypnosis is, um, and we'll just leave it there, but I was, I, that was my first training, right? And I have since really, I, I don't practice regression work really anymore. I just, it's not something that I, I, I tend to go to as my, as a line of helping people. Um, however, um, it was my foundation. Um, and I forgot where I was going. Oh, so anyway, I, I thought the, the one thing I didn't necessarily agree with with her approach was that she seemed very reactionary when it came to ab reaction and very fearful of it and be very, you know, she, she, she warned people away from it and, you know, and, and made it seem like a frightening thing rather than something, okay, if you sit through it with the person, you can help them. And this may actually end up being beneficial if they ab react appropriately and we can guide them through the ab reaction, right? Um, of course, since then I've learned that there's no reason to actually go through that. All that does is create acceptance. And so why don't we just do that without the ab reaction? Um, you know, um, 
<laughs> Seems a lot nicer to the client. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> and they are happier to come back the next time. <laughs> Boy, aren't yeah. they? Yeah, they sure seem to be. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'm kind of wondering how you feel about that and, and what your what your take is on that and, and the fear that is kind of generated behind that sometimes. It, it is interesting. I remember being at the National Guild of Hypnotists conference quite a few years ago. And I was sitting outside chatting to someone because I, I chat to everybody and anybody because you everyone's got interesting stuff. So the more people you speak to, the more interesting stuff you get to hear. And I was chatting to this guy and he, he was he was new to to working with our reaction. He says, I'm really worried that I'm doing so badly. He said, because there's somebody doing the similar therapy next door. And within 10 minutes, he's got them weeping and wailing. And it takes me at least half an hour. No. Like, oh, okay. Um, you know, have you thought about maybe learning other things as well? I mean, <laughs> redirected him to sort towards some books and different things and some of the useful talks at the NGH conference I thought might suit him. That was a hard that was a hard sell, a useful talk at the NGH, really. No, I'm teasing. Um <laughs> Well, once you've been a few years, you know what it's likely to be there. So I know. I just got the look from Nicole. Did you see it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it's fascinating that people either love ab reaction work or they don't. Right. Mm. I for me, I tend to work by a different model. So I tend to work behaviorally, cognitively, analytically, and then regressive work. So working with habit change, least intrusive to more intrusive, because ultimately people come and they just want things to be different. They want things to be better. Yeah. Mm. So if you can change the habits, stop doing what they're doing, start doing something different, it's often enough for people. Maybe they've got limiting beliefs, so working them more cognitively can help. Then maybe a bit more analytical work to look at the underlying stuff, you know, the why. Somebody mm. may need to know why. And then regression, and I use regression a lot for resources as well as for going back and getting new perspectives. I tend not to deliberately go for, for ab reactions, but mm. if somebody does spontaneously ab react, then it can be cathartic. Although some of the research says that actually it isn't necessarily cathartic and can be re-traumatizing depending yeah. on somebody responds yeah especially if you don't know what to do with that yeah and when you have somebody who goes through a two-week training program with no kind of mentorship with no kind of uh, anything no kind of real world practice of what it's actually like to experience one because you only pretend in training right you're not allowed to do and this is one of the things that that i find really interesting is that you know in some of these trainings you're not allowed to practice what they're teaching you until you go out to the real world which would suggest to me that maybe they shouldn't be doing that without some sort of supervision if it's too freaky to do it in class and we don't want to go down that rabbit hole because of what it could open up, but we want you to charge big bucks to go out and apply it to somebody else, that's a little bit of frighteningness to me. That's a little bit of, I don't know. I'm just going to leave it there. Every technique that I expect my students to be able to do, mm -hmm. I will talk about it. I will demo it. After the demo, they will break down what I've demoed. I will then recap 
they will go and practice. They will come back and reflect on what they've done. Then they'll practice it for homework and write a reflection. And that's the only way that they're going to even think about developing competence. And we both, we all know, I'm sure, that confidence only comes from being able to actually do it right. and know that you can do it. Right. Not fake it till you yeah. make it. I mean, there's there's a bit of being able to, you know, hold, care, guide somebody or lead somebody with an appropriate kind of voice or modulations or that sort of thing, right? But uh, at the beginning, but I think that without, that's one of the things I'm sort of proud about, about the way we teach now, even with the control system is we expect you to go out and do five case studies. Can you apply what you have just learned? And not only can you apply it, but we expect you to write it up in such a way that I can understand what it is you've done. And, and you can you can tell me what it is you've done and why you've done it this way, because there's not necessarily a wrong way. Mm. Right? There is how did you apply what we have taught you and do you understand it? Totally agree with you. That's something that I, well, I share with all of my students is that it isn't about knowing just, oh, for this, I'll use that technique. It's about knowing what you're doing at every moment and why you're doing it. Yes. And that's really important. It isn't just that you learn by rote. Oh, for that technique, I use this. For that technique, I use mm. that. Because it might be that they have the client comes with something that isn't quite what you've learned. <laughs> so you need to know how something works so that you can apply it most appropriately. And right. also you need to know that if it isn't working how you think it should work, what you're going to do about it. Right. Hmm. And you know, Harry, what you're saying right now is kind of making me chuckle because you you said you need to know how it works in order for it to get to work right. And, da, da. and the main, th I, I started to chuckle about that because the thing that we need to get to understand or we need to teach them how it works to fix all of it is their mind. Yeah. And if they would just, it's like the, the, the saying at the end of my little videos goes and stuff. It's like, use the tool or be the tool, be the tool. right? You know, um, <laughs> the option's yours. Um, <laughs> I love that. It's, I, I would probably talk about teaching and, and styles forever. I, I honestly think though that it's something that one of my first mentors said to me, hypnotherapy is both a skill and an art. So it's sort of like a science and an art. Mm. And you need to know the science, but you know, a manual isn't going to hypnotize anyone unless, I suppose, you could maybe roll it up and use it for eye yeah. <laughs> To be um, fair, though, I, I actually quit smoking from reading many years ago from reading Alan Carr's Easy Way to Stop Smoking. And I put the book down about two thirds of the way and I was like, I just can't do it anymore. I'll just give up smoking to stop reading it. And that is completely hypnotic the whole book is hypnotic oh, yeah. yeah yeah absolutely but I think generally it's something like that <coughs> excuse me is really well focused around that particular topic mm. it's unlikely we're going to have a couple of thousand books that are that effective for everyone. yeah sure so for something like smoking, it can be good. I've, I've had clients where that's worked really well for them. Mm. I've had others where it hasn't given them the resources that they needed. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's each to their own. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was many years ago. I was in my early 20s and I just remember getting so irritated with this bloody book. I was like, I'm just going to stop smoking so I can stop reading it. And that was <laughs> one one of my friends actually proved how effective self-aversion is, because what he did was he he thought, well, and we, we were we'd studied together. He thought, I wonder. And without using full blown aversion, which could be quite dramatic. Mm-hmm. Thought, OK, so he spent a week and for every cigarette, he went outside and he looked at a grey wall. And for every puff on that cigarette, he said, <coughs> I'm not enjoying this at all. <clears throat> this is horrible. <clears throat> I'm really disgusted by this. And he put the coughs in there and he was literally staring at this great wall. And by day five, he realized that he'd gone from 20 cigarettes down to two. Wow. By day seven, completely stopped. And he was just like, oh, this is just, he just programmed himself. Wow. To find it most revolting. Right. Well, it's the same way he programmed himself to enjoy it when he was with all of his friends yeah. And, yeah. and everything else. I mean, you know, yeah. it's the deprogramming. Um, doesn't it take so much willpower, doesn't it, to, 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 to do that? We had we had somebody else on the show, um, Christopher, Christopher Nolan. Was it Christopher who who had recovered from who had sort of gone through this process, this recovery, the MS recovery? Dr. Chris and Black. I, sorry. Chris, yeah, that was right, Dr. Chris Black, sorry. And just the same as the story you're telling now, Kate, you know, that the willpower that mm-hmm. it takes to say, I'm going to reprogram my own mind on my own. I mean, that in itself is is impressive. Well, to those degrees, but yeah, I was going to say, isn't that what we do with every single client that we're, we're, we're guiding? And I mean, I I think this is what you talk about, Nicole, those, I mean, with Dr. Chris Black, he was from not walking to walking. Mm. Um, We're talking about multiple sclerosis regarding, uh, which is very, very different and very impressive and very different, I think, than quitting smoking. Because as a smoker, you know, as a not, as a smoker, I used to be a smoker. Let me rephrase that. Um, (laughs) You know, um, I've got a different and a different approach to it. And you know, it's interesting. I, I would really like to hear your opinion about twenty year old coming in and running a program and teaching people how to do this work. Okay, for me, does that make sense? It's not about age. <clears throat> it's about what they bring mm. and their attitude. I have been taught by people who have been in the business for many years and they've bored me senseless in fact I'll give you an example I went to one conference and they'd given us sandwiches for lunch which was fatal um, because Uh, the speaker uh. was highly regarded and he sat there and uh, luckily I was at the back and he turned around and said this is the first time I've given this presentation so bear with me And he proceeded to read the slides word for word very slowly for 45 minutes. And you know that thing where you dig your nails into your (laughs) thumb? I was doing that so much, I actually broke the skin at one point. It was dire. And yet he had all of this wealth of knowledge 
but he just didn't have the ability to convey it or to to hold attention mm. I've had I've been, sat in conferences like that. Well, I've actually not sat in them. I've gotten them walked out, but I've, I've experienced it. Yeah. Um, I've, I've also been to, to talks where people have been a lot younger, but their passion, their communication skills, and the knowledge that they have about what they're talking about is so relevant and so beautifully transmitted that it's absolutely fantastic. So I don't necessarily say that it's it's for any particular age group. It's really about, for every hypnotherapist, everyone's had a different journey to get to this point. Mm-hmm. And that's what will make them a unique person for their clients. No hypnotherapist will be the right person for every client, Yeah, but they will be the right person for enough clients. Mm. So it's it's really, I think, for me, it isn't about age. It's about have they got the relevant training so that they're safe, ethical, competent, capable? Mm. And do they come with the attitude, the right attitude, rather than perhaps a rigid, inflexible attitude that the client must bend to their will, yeah. as opposed to the therapist offering the best possible therapy for the client? Mm. Right on, right on. I think as you know, it's funny, I used to be, Nicole will tell you, it was not even a year ago that I was like, you know, I don't know what people that are young should be doing this kind of work and da, 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 da. And I had this barrier up, right? And now I have been looking for and encouraging these younger people that I have been interacting with at some of these different places that I, I, I that I frequent. Like I heard a gal, one of the baristas at, at a coffee shop I go to, who I love the way that she talks to clients or her, 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 her fellow people there. And I just adore her. And she goes, you know, I'm just looking for something different. I'm like, this may be something for you to consider. She goes, but aren't I too young? Because I'm just, you know, 20 years old. I'm like, it's not about that. I'm like, you know how to connect with people. Hmm. You know, I'm like a year ago, I would have been like, oh, she wouldn't know how to, it doesn't matter about that. It matters. Can you, can you create a space? Can you, can you connect? Can you create that rapport? And I'm like, you're you're one of the, I, I, you know. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm glad that my own growth in that has changed because I think that I would like to bring a younger generation into what we do because they, they can relate to each other better. I think for me, it isn't just a younger generation. I, I go a little bit broader than that. And I do my absolute best and all of us, every one of us is judgmental in our way, but it's about recognizing that we can be. <laughs> and it's about recognizing that that person with a beard and a heavy metal band tattoo and um, things like that, they, they will bring things for their clients. You know, the, the person who's in their seventies, who looks perhaps like a frail old lady or old gentleman, they will bring things for their clients. Mm. So rather than judging the person on their outside and their age or their ethnicity or anything about them, it's about what can you offer to the people that you'll be working with? Mm -hmm. I think that for me is the most important thing. I've taught everybody from bus drivers, lorry drivers, up to genetic scientists. And it's, it's really about 
where they've you know their journey to that point and then how they go forwards and if people are taught well with good quality materials and have the positive attitude they're going to be able to go out there and really help mm. hundreds and thousands of people and grow into it as well you know they'll, yes, they'll grow absolutely. into it and we've talked about this many, many times on this podcast at the end of the day it's your own personality you know character and experience that you bring into your practice and and how you interact and engage with clients and and your you're going to evolve no matter what training we could all do the same training we're all going to deliver it slightly differently um right. according to to who we are and how we are um so yeah absolutely um so, go, go ahead on, or go, no go ahead well i was gonna i was gonna say we we do like to ask um one particular question to all of our guests on this podcast kate so okay. um <laughs> <laughs> um and a, a learning a learning curve so something that you know has maybe a bad decision maybe a bad bad there's no such thing as a bad decision a decision something you did maybe with a client maybe in your practice maybe while you were building your business or delivering a course or something that you've kind of looked back on and gone oh yeah I wouldn't do that again that way <laughs> would you like to Can yeah, I go for it. <laughs> absolutely <laughs> but a teaching one and a therapy one um a teaching one I, I met a guy when I was on a course in England and he said to me, he said, oh, because I, I teach people how to do demonstrations and presentations for hypnosis. It's, it's really good to be able to give mm. demos, run workshops so that you can promote your business. Absolutely. Mm. Can you come over to Italy and teach, teach my people how to do that? Like, wow. Yes, I'd love to. Thank you. And I went over and it just never occurred to me that I was going to be translated. Oh, yeah. So it was fine. I cope with that. You know, the, the key thing with translation is to sm speak in small chunks, allow them time to speak. Everything takes twice as long, obviously, to teach. But the thing that I found was really a challenge. I had no idea if they were doing it right. All mm. I could go on was my observation skills. Did they look, you know, all the nonverbal communication, did they look, was the tone of voice right? Was I seeing signs of hypnosis? Were they doing what I was expecting them to do? Mm. So, so that was very much something that I learned from. It, it really was. I'm a little bit more comfortable with it now. I teach EMDR in Iceland and other places and I've got used to it. But that first time, the translator didn't really throw me, but not knowing. I like to know what's going on. Mm. So that was a challenge. My, my <laughs> other sort of challenge that I really learned from was I mentioned earlier about doing hypnosis on the wards in a teaching hospital. And I think I, I got asked to do that. I'm on the board with a voluntary regulator in the UK, the CNHC, I'm on the profession specific board for hypnotherapy. And I'm also chair of the British Society of Clinical Hypnosis. So I think they asked the BSCH for somebody, the hospital asked for somebody that knew hypnosis. And I have a, a modicum of knowledge of it. Yeah. So I got asked to, to do some work as a clinical hypnotherapist on the wards. And nobody knew what to expect. I don't think I knew what to expect. And I got sent to pretty much every ward in, apart from children's and infectious diseases and the private wards. 
And it was a baptism of fire, really. I had the skills. I knew what I was doing. That was absolutely fine. But things like um, the ward curtains. Now, you draw a curtains around somebody for privacy um, and also to hopefully stop everybody else in the bay because they say six beds in a bay, stop everybody else going into hypnosis, because you know what it's like when you hypnotise one person, everybody else wants to join the ride. Yeah. But people, patients seem to treat those ward curtains as soundproof. And they share stuff, and I'm thinking, oh, do you really want the rest of the bay to be knowing this? And it's finding ways of tactfully redirecting them without saying the whole bay can hear what you're talking about mm. um so that's interesting there's also a particular phenomena in hospital i found where people do share far more and far quicker because of the environment they're in mm. and the the other thing that i learned from is you know those floor cleaning machines i found that no matter how thoroughly i checked the ward for that floor cleaning machine it could be nowhere in sight. The very moment I get my patient into hypnosis, he's outside, he's outside the room or the bay. Yeah, yeah. Scrubbing it away a particular little spot on the floor. So you learn to be really, really good at manipulating distractions. But it, it was it's absolutely um, a fascinating environment to, to work in and certainly made full use of a, a lot of my training amazing well um okay it's been it's been really fabulous oh anthony you've just you've just flicked to another camera because <laughs> yeah, the other one was too bright <laughs> um yeah okay it's been such a wonderful wonderful um you know experience having you on the podcast and talking to you and i feel like we could carry this on for for hours but um <laughs> But yeah, I think it's, it, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up now and say we would love to have you back on again in the future oh. to, to carry on this conversation because you are, you know, it's, it's so interesting talking to you and, and there's, there's so much that we haven't even touched on yet. So yeah, thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I and have thank you so well. much for your time. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been, you know, a delight to, to meet both of you and I look forward to thanks for listening to the hypnotic healers podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and follow us on Facebook. You can also join our mailing list at hypnotic healers.com.